arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. check the local office. Thank you very much. Miss Coyne, could your father have had a last-minute change in plans, maybe decided to stay over for a few more days? No, he would have let me know. He knew I was planning on meeting him. Mr. Cannon, something is just wrong. Now, I feel it. Miss Coyne, you still haven't told me why you didn't call the police. I don't think my father would like it. You see, he's just... He's come out of prison after ten years. Your father is Harry Coyne? The Harry Coyne, who held up the Midland armored car with three other men and wounded a cop. Cannon, a Quinn Martin production from 1971 to 1976, right there on CBS. William Conrad, who was Matt Dillon on the radio, had that wonderful voice that just seemed to resonate with everybody, no matter what he did for a series. Cannon in this particular episode is looking for a missing guy who happens to be a criminal. Well, just coincidentally, Jones is at the beginning of an investigation searching for a former mob boss who is now somewhere with dementia and nobody seems to know where. Albert Fiore is lying about it. Jones meets with P.J. Fletcher who clearly resembles Hamilton Fletcher in many ways. P.J. orders Hamilton Fletcher's son, Ham, around like a servant. And later, Albert Fury himself will confront Jones, not once, but twice. And what about the logbooks that are under investigation? Step aboard, this is episode two of The Life and Times of Charlie Diaper, beginning now. The Life and Times of Charlie Diaper, Chapter 6. Fletcher Estate, Fletcher Hill, Hamilton, New Hampshire, April 6th, 1 p.m. The rain came in at enough of an angle to smear across the windshield, even though the wipers moved at high speed. Jones thought a small white Toyota had followed him from his house on the common. As he swung the Jeep onto the narrow Fletcher Hill Drive, the little white Toyota passed by on Route 32 north of town. Jones then shifted up the winding hill to the Fletcher Mansion. When he finally saw the multi-winged house through the rain, he could almost imagine Hamilton Fletcher was still alive and inside. Jones parked in the circular drive. He raced through the downpour and climbed up the portico stairs. Hollings smiled as he opened the front doors. Hello, Matthias. How are you, Hollings? asked Jones as he walked inside. Fine, sir, fine, he answered. Jones pushed back his slicker hood. May I take your coat? Jones removed his slicker and handed it to Hollings. Hollings looked to his left and down the hall toward Hamilton Fletcher's old office. Ham Fletcher, in a sports shirt, rounded the hallway. Matthias, I thank you for coming. I never met P.J. Ham. Well, P.J. hasn't been to Fletcher Hill in years. It was Dad's will that brought him back to Hamilton. Ham motioned Jones into the drawing room, and they sat in adjoining chairs. Drink, Matthias? Whatever you're drinking, Ham. Two scotch and sodas, please, Hollings. Yes, sir. What does P.J. do in Chicago, asked Jones. Oh, P.J. owns the Hall department stores in the Midwest. Wow. Dad tried time after time to get P.J. to relocate operations to Hamilton. My cousins were young then, and they opted to stay in Chicago. How old is P.J. now, asked Jones. Thirty-five. It's a high-energy type of guy. Hauling served them drinks, and Jones leaned forward. Sounds as if P.J. wanted to come back here. He could have handled things from Chicago. Actually, I asked him to come back. Jones sipped the drink, much milder than Hamilton Fletcher's concoction of potent scotch and water. I like being on the road. I always have when Dad was alive. I think you have to like what you're doing. Ham finished the drink as his phone rang. He pushed the speaker button. Good afternoon. This is Ham Fletcher. Ham, what kind of damn town has Hamilton become? P.J., what's the problem? I'll tell you what the problem is. I just left Prince William. 
I'm driving this Cadillac Escalade SUV over the notch on Route 32 when these sheets of plywood come flying through the air. The first one missed me, but this moron took out the passenger side of the windshield and forced me off the road. Was it a blue truck? asked Jones. Ham, don't put me on the damn speaker when I don't know who I'm talking to. My apologies, said Ham. Never mind your apologies. That was Matthias Jones, our coach of three sports. I know who the hell he is. Jones, what idiot was driving that truck? More than likely doer's lumber, said Jones. This man sounded as if he were a younger version of Hamilton Fletcher with a different accent. The owner is Arnie Dewars. Thanks, Jones. I'll have my people get on it right away. Looking forward to meeting you, Mr. Fletcher. Good. Then he hung up. He sounds like a man in command, said Jones. I can say, Matthias, that P.J. is more like my father than me. Not the first time the rain has let up for me, cracked a voice in the foyer. Jones first saw P.J. Fletcher poolside as the shorter P.J., dressed impeccably in a white suit and red tie, emerged from the mansion. P.J. walked confidently toward the pool area. The cover was still on the pool. He was bald with short brown hair on the sides. His sideburns were thick and trimmed. Jones stood as P.J. passed Ham and extended his hand to Jones. Jones, what a pleasure to meet you. I've studied your record. I like people who can walk the walk. Well, thank you, sir. P.J., he said as he turned to Ham. Ham, get us some drinks, will you? Ham nodded and headed back to the mansion. He doesn't have the gonads Hamilton had. Well, Hamilton was unique. Hamilton told me about you after you blew away that Bumbler Larson's records. So you work out of Chicago, P.J. You have all my life, except when I was in the service. Served in the Marines and expanded my father's retail business. He was cousin to Hamilton. The two went to Princeton together. You married, Jones? Informally engaged. And you? Wife, Joni. Kids, Susie, Joni, and Philip. What's your girl's name? Franny. Give me an invite when you get married. Ham served the drinks to PJ and Jones. Thanks, Ham. So, PJ, I'd like to have a conversation. PJ held the glass in his hand. Conversation about what, Ham? The paint company. Well, don't try and tout your sales figures. I've seen how sales have dipped since my cousin died. What's to talk about? Jones held the scotch but did not drink. Oh, I'm happier when I'm on the road. <laughs> Is that right? PJ set down his drink. Is that what you'd tell your father if he were here? Those are the words of a loser, Ham. See here, PJ. You're a weakling, Ham. Your sister Anna has more spine. You have no tact. And you have no balls. Ham turned and walked quickly toward the house. PJ shook his head. He'll run that company into the ground. How long are you back here, PJ? asked Jones. <laughs> long enough to get my piece of Hamilton, he said in a maniacal chuckle. My so-called inheritance. And I'd love to audit the paint company in gratitude to Hamilton. Let's have dinner, PJ, before you leave. I like you, Jones. Sure, if I have the time, he said as his phone rang. PJ Fletcher. Jack, you did? Excellent. We'll have the state and feds up here. No, put my name on the complaint to that bozo. Right. Okay, bye. Arnie Dewars? Exactly. Dewars will be fined at the kazoo as well as a suit for my legal team. The rental car is destroyed. PJ? Said Jones as he shook PJ's hand. It's been a pleasure to meet you. The Life and Times of Charlie Diaper, Chapter 7. Hamilton College Gymnasium, Hamilton College, Hamilton, New Hampshire, April 6th, 2.36 p.m. Avondale was not too far west from his game next week in Connecticut. Jones wanted to follow up the lead about Marjorie Reed before talking further to Strickland. Jones balanced his foot on the gymnasium windowsill as the rain pummeled his jeep outside. He set down a piece of yellow lined paper with a lineup for the game in Prince William tomorrow but his thoughts remained on the horrific explosion behind Larson Stadium. Jones had outlined on paper his concerns about the bombed Mustang and the connections to Avondale, Connecticut, Jonathan Miller, and Marjorie Reed. He jotted a memo to call Reed and Miller's parents. Then he placed a call to one of his chemistry professors who liked going to Jones's games. Players are running laps, Matthias, said the wavy-haired woozy as Jones turned. Hold on, Woos. 
The line clicked. This is Professor Dumbar. Professor, this is Coach Jones. Ah, Coach, the baseball team is undefeated. Doing the basics. Listen, I need a favor. Sure, I'm always glad to help the home team. What can I do for you? I was wondering if there's a certain type of drug that can cause dementia. Yeah, whiskey straight up. <laughs> Said the professor, laughing. No, no, I mean short term. You working on a case? Maybe. My mouth is sealed. I can get you some information on that. I'll get on it right away. Great. Use this number. Be careful when you follow the masses. Sometimes the M is silent. <laughs> Wonderful. Bye now. Jones stared at the phone. Professor Dumbal is very odd, Rosie. He's an old Hamilton Fletcher hire from the Far East. Yeah, from far out. Oh well. Coach, I'll start with the infield in the gym. Have them whip the ball around. I'll be right out. I have to make one more phone call. Woozy nodded and exited into the corridor. Jones punched in Father Gallagher's number. This is Father Gallagher. Jim, this is Matthias. Oh, good. I was going to call you. Have you heard from Coco? It's like he's disappeared. I talked to Rita Stefani. She's looking for both Dulio and Coco. Jones peered out the window again. I thought Coco might have called you. Nothing. Listen, Matthias, with the bishop delaying my flight, I'm flying out to St. Martin tomorrow morning. I'm sure Albert Fiore has people watching Reader's house, and they're more than likely watching me. Herbert Lane probably is, too. Matthias, be careful. We're talking about something that can bring Fiore down. I'm well aware of that, Jim. With two hours into practice, Jones demonstrated the necessity of staying inside the bases and not overrunning. Purely a matter of seconds, boys. If you loop out after rounding first, the right fielder throws the ball to second base, you're going to want to beat that throw. That includes getting out of the batter's box, too, said Woozy. Jones felt as if a buzzer went off inside his stomach as Fiore and three of his men from Fenway stepped through the gymnasium doors. The mobster's presence at Hamilton College made Jones worry about Coco's safety. Woozy, start the infield drills. I'll be right back. Jones walked directly toward Fiore near the bleachers. The dark-eyed Fiore had dyed black hair and a navy suit with a red tie. The three men, also in dark suits, stood to his side. Hello, Matt, said Fiore, not shaking his hand. Do you have good news or bad? I got no news at all, buddy. I want to know where Coco Stefani took off to. Who blew up the Mustang? Mustang? What Mustang? asked Fiore. I repeat, where is Coco? I can't help you. Jones adjusted his baseball cap. You think I'd tell you even if I did know? If you're smart, you will, Matt. Look, Mr. Fiore. You in that men's room, Matt? Fiore looked at Jones's hands. Maybe not. I have a team to run, said Jones as he turned. The man on the right clamped his hand around Jones's bicep. Jones shook him off and faced Fiore and the other men. I don't have any answers for you, Mr. Fiore, and my name is Matthias, not Matt. If you want to sick your people on me, then go ahead. I don't have answers. Where is Charlie DePiro? asked Fiore. Fiore stepped closer where Jones could sense his pine-scented cologne. I mean, Charlie Diaper. <laughs> How would I know that? Nobody knows, Matt. FBI, Homeland Security, state and local. We've wanted for years. How do you hide a demented fool like Charlie Diaper? Fury scowled at Jones and then signaled with his head. The three men followed Fiore through the gym doors. Jones's first inclination was to blame Fiore for the bomb. The exploding Mustang circulated in his mind as he headed back to the team. The timing for destroying Miller's car and Fiore's appearance in the gym almost reached the level of a side road theory. But the major problem right now was Charlie DePiro and the logbook scandal. What if he could link Miller with Charlie DePiro, possibly in Connecticut? Side road theories had a way of falling apart real fast, if not backed up by facts. The Life and Times of Charlie Diaper, Chapter 9 Albert Collins Sports Complex, Tabletop Hill, Prince William, New Hampshire, April 10th, 3.30 p.m. In the midst of the fog filtering in from the river, Jones moved along the bench. At the top of the second inning, he liked the way Ricky Sullivan was throwing the ball. 
Ricky kicked at the end of his delivery, and he consistently placed the ball where he wanted it in the zone. The mound was the only part of the field that had been maintained after the rain. Little pebbles popped up on grounders to the infield, and the outfield grass appeared more like a green, moldy expanse. Several portions of the outfield sloped downward as if it were atop a sinkhole. Hey, woozy. Yeah, coach, he said his assistant to his right. Jones studied the backstop. This is a strange field. That backstop has to be 50 feet high. And you'd think they could maintain the field a little bit better? Somebody's going to get hurt. Boss, the field is still wet from the rain yesterday, said Woozy. The grass could use water. And Collins is an engineering school. Mac told me somebody from Devonshire broke his ankle just running in from right field. I believe it, said Jones, clapping his hands as Ricky struck out the batter. How to pitch, Ricky. Jones clapped and met Ricky halfway. You're in control, kid. You're in control. Top of the order, said Woozy, holding a scorebook. We have a three-run game, said Jones. I want you boys to hit away. Let's put some more up on the board. A large sedan pulled out of the fog off Summit Street and turned into the parking lot. Jones's gut felt like a pincushion as Fiore, in a dark suit and red tie, stepped out of the car with the three men from Fenway, Dogface, Big Boy, and Flatfoot. Jones slinked behind the weathered wood bleaches and called Strickland. George Strickland. George. Fiore and his goons just stepped out of his limo. Fiore a Hamilton fan? Not funny, George. Suppose he's armed. Thias, what do you think he's going to do? Put the hit on you during the game? Asked Strickland, chuckling. He thinks I know where Coco is. I'm more concerned about this Connecticut thing and the Mustang, said Strickland. Jones watched Fiore walk toward the stands. George, Fiore is here. Just tell him you don't know where Coco is. He's trying to intimidate you, and he's doing a pretty good job of it. Jones started back to the team. Maybe there are other connections, George. You're thinking about the bomb. There's nothing linking Fiore with that explosion. FYI, I'm over at Clayton's office right now. He may have some preliminary results of the Miller autopsy. Do you know where Coco is? No, George, I don't. I'll be over the ball field once I'm done here. Fury and his men took up seats in the wood bleaches along the first baseline. Jones continued coaching as if they were not there. Hamilton gained another run, and Ricky, his arms still strong, took them out. When Jones checked Woozy's scorebook, he suddenly realized Ricky was pitching a no-hitter. But he kept the news to himself. Hello, Matt, said Fiore in the top of the fifth. He now stood in the first row over Jones's right shoulder. Jones had still not turned around. If you don't mind, I have a game going here. Your boy looks good on the mound. Came all the way down from Boston to tell me that? Then he turned. Look, Mr. Fiore, I don't know where Coco went. Jones made eye contact with Woozy, and Woozy began coaching the team. That's not my question, Matt. Is he talking to the feds? Coco doesn't deal with the feds, then the DA. Just the deposition to Herbert Lane. That bag of flatulence? No, the Suffolk County DA, Bruce Angler. Don't know. I haven't seen Coco or talked to him since Fenway. One of your guys broke Ziggy's jar up in the skybox, like brass knuckles. You and your thugs started it. Thugs? You're being too harsh, Matt. He pressed his incisors together as he talked. You listen to me, pal. This testimony doesn't break the way I want it to. I could end up in jail for the rest of my life. Haven't you heard crime doesn't pay? You're wrong. Pays very well. Then Fury smiled and patted Jones's cheek. Let me take another tactic, Matt. I can make things happen for you. Keep your eyes and ears open. You get any info, you call me. Jones wanted to ask him about Charlie DePiro, but he thought that question to Fury could really get him in trouble. Fiore handed Jones a gold card with raised cursive lettering. Impressive. Right. Jones, if I learn you've been holding back, I'll make your life a living hell before I take you down. Again, he looked down at Jones's knuckles. To his right, a black and white Prince William cruiser lingered along the towering backstop. Did you call those Prince William flunkies on me? Jones shook his head. I did not. Fiore signaled to his men. 
They all left the bleaches and moved quickly toward the lower parking lot. Jones walked back briskly to Woozy. Gee, coach, you should stay away longer. We just scored three runs. Ricky, in his red warm-up jacket, sat away from the team. Just make sure these boys keep his status to themselves. Just as Jones spoke, Bucky Driscoll and Spike from the fire department climbed into the bleaches. Oh, Bucky taunting is the last thing Ricky needs right now. I'll go over and talk to him, said Woozy as he handed the scorebook to Jones. Dave Bates grounded a third to end the inning. Ricky removed his jacket and headed to the mound to warm up. Bucky's voice and his bizarre laugh trickled down the baseline as Woozy warned him about heckling. Ah, this guy knows when to keep his mouth shut. Yeah, that'll be the day. Throw strikes, Rick, throw strikes, yelled Jones as he clapped. Yeah, Ricky, throw some more of those puffballs. He'd better not ruin this kid's game. Hey, pitcher, pitcher, shouted Bucky at the top of the eighth. Spike and his blue windbreaker had driven the team bus to Prince William and now sat with Bucky. Bucky continued to taunt Ricky. Mr. Tough Guy! Mr. Tough Guy! The furious Jones marched along the bleaches. Bucky elbowed Spike and pointed toward the field. <laughs> you ought not to bother the pitcher, Driscoll, said Spike. Why are you rooting against Hamilton, Bucky? yelled Jones. Because you wouldn't give me no Red Sox tickets. I have nothing to do with this, said Spike, raising both hands. I know that, Spike. On the ground ball to first, Ricky covered and retired the side. Just three more outs and Ricky Sullivan would have a perfect game. I'm surprised your buddy Arnie isn't up here cackling with you. Oh, the state's auditing Arnie's trucks. Arnie's going to tell them off. Yeah, sure he is. Just keep your trap shut, Bucky. Ha ha, you can dish it out, but you can't take it, Coach, said Bucky. I know how to get what I want. Yeah, you'll get it all right. Jones took out his phone and called Dom Pacheco, the chief of police in Prince William. The line rang. Hey, Matthias, how you doing? Not too well. I have a disturbance in the stands at the Collins game. You guys had a cruiser pass by about an hour ago. Bucky Driscoll is disrupting the game. Driscoll? Is that idiot? George is on his way over to your game, Matthias. He should almost be there. I'll let him know. Thanks. Thank you, Dom. Jones returned to Bucky and went nose to nose with Bucky's garlic breath. You heard it, Bucky. Get the hell out of here right now. <laughs> I'm not falling for that trick, said Bucky, pretending to punch Spike's shoulder. Hey, hands off, Bucky. You better leave. You ruined that kid's game, Bucky, and you'll never set foot at a Hamilton game again. Oh, big talk. Ricky sat alone at the end of the bench with his jacket draped over his pitching arm. Jones fought the urge to give him encouragement, talking to a pitcher, pitching a no-hitter with Jinx's performance. Chad Toomey popped a foul ball skyward. The ball arced into the fog and then fell to the top of the backstop where it lodged between the chain links. The umpire threw a clean ball back to the Collins pitcher. In Jones's peripheral vision, Spike leaped up from the fifth row of the bleach onto the dirt. He sprinted along the chain link fence. Jones's mouth opened as Spike scrambled up the backstop like a monkey in the zoo. In just a few seconds, he grabbed the baseball, put it in his pocket, and dropped in large sections back to the ground. Then he ran over to Jones and handed him the ball. Where did you learn to do that? asked Jones. Army Rangers. Well, if I'm ever trapped on the 10th floor, Spike, I'll give you a buzz. I'll be there, coach. Spike spun around and then scampered up the bleaches to Bucky, who gave him the high five. Jones returned to the bench as O'Brien grounded out. Ricky removed his warm-up jacket and walked to the mound. Jones could feel the excitement of a possible no-hitter. He winked at Woozy as Ricky began warming up. On the first pitch, the Collins batter popped up to Jack Baker on third. From the stands, Bucky Driscoll started ranting again. Two more batters until the no-hitter! Jones grit his teeth as Ricky looked toward the stands. Jones slowly backed up as Ricky threw a ball outside. As Jones reached the bench, Ricky threw another ball. 
Spike pulled back a strip of gray duct tape and pressed it over Bucky's mouth. Jones smiled. I always carry duct tape, said Spike. Why am I not surprised? Ricky turned from the bleaches and evidenced a grin. Then he proceeded to fire three straight strikes. Jones checked the bleaches. Bucky's mouth remained duct taped shut. Jones said nothing and stood behind the bench. Ricky pitched a ball that Jones was sure to hit the strike zone. On the next pitch, the Collins batter hit a grounder to short. Lou Martin raised the ball into his glove and set his throw. He had the runner by five steps. The entire team, including Jones, descended upon Ricky as Woozy snapped pictures with his phone. Ben Benson, the Collins coach, shook Ricky's hand. That's the best pitch game I've ever seen. Too bad you had that dimwit guy in the bleachers, but looks as though he's been taken care of. It's a wonderful thing, Ben. Team meeting in center field, yelled Jones, and the team headed toward the outfield. Spike hoisted Bucky in a traditional fireman's carry and marched down the bleachers. George Strickland entered through the front gate and stared at Bucky squirming over Spike's shoulders. He motioned for Spike to leave through the open gate. With a huge smile, he turned to Jones. We're all heading for the Colonial House later to celebrate Ricky's achievement, George. Strickland rounded the bench. No hitter? Yes, sir, despite the obnoxious Mr. Driscoll. Spike seems to have put an end to Bucky's harassment. That he did, Georgie, that he did. What have you got? They walked along the third baseline. Clayton's been working with the state bomb inspector. The second explosion was the gas tank. Only one bomb, dynamite. Dynamite? They're working on the type and contents. It was under Miller's seat. The stick was on a radio-controlled detonator, and as strange as it may seem, it went off right after Lark's crazy driving. Sometimes I think bad karma follows Lark, said Jones. I'll second that. Pinky is telling me that Miller's parents and everyone else have no idea why John Miller was in New Hampshire. The foreman at his job at Pagani Construction said he took a few days off. They're all shocked. Apparently he's a good kid with no record. Come on, coach, called Woozy as he pointed towards center field. Jones waved at Woozy. What do you think, George? I agree with you. Let me know if anything else comes down. We'll be at the Colonial House. Now buy a dinner for Spike and more duct tape. The Life and Times of Charlie Diaper, Chapter 8, Club Max, Front Street, Prince William, New Hampshire, April 8th, 8.30 p.m. With a cell phone in his ear, Jones walked from his Jeep toward Club Max's bright pink neon front entrance. Franny, I just got off the line with Billy Bobcat. Billy Bobcat, said Franny. Jones tilted his head back and laughed. No, it's serious. He claims he's uncovered information on the logbook scandal. You know how much of a prevaricator Billy is. I know, but I have to check it out. If it helps Coco, wherever he is. Just keep your eyes peeled at the club, coach. You already said people are following you. Jones lingered near the front door. The cooler air prompted him to zip up his jacket. I'm checking with Bruno first. Bucky came up to my house. He's been calling my phone all afternoon. You're not going to like what he said. What? He wants you to pay his legal bills for the Fenway fiasco. The only thing I'll pay for is the firing squad. Franny chuckled as she spoke. Bucky thinks that Hamilton has left him a fortune. I'm surprised there wasn't cash in Hamilton's casket, said Jones. I know one thing. Ham and PJ don't get along. Ham does everything he can to avoid PJ. I'll call you, Franny, if it's before midnight. Stay safe. Jones stepped into the pounding music. He'd only gone a few steps when Bruno, away from his bartending duties, caught sight of Jones from Coco's rear office. The dark-haired Bruno waved Jones back. Jones moved along the bar to the office beyond the folding doors. Jonesy, said the deep-voiced Bruno as he closed the doors. Where is he? I thought you'd tell me, Bruno. I don't know where the hell he is, and neither does anyone else. This is not good, Jonesy. What are the possibilities? Vegas? That's where his old man is. Already somehow connected with the boss. Where's Charlie? Who knows? Jones winced. Come on, Bruno. Don't BS me. 
I ain't saying nothing. There have been all sorts of dudes roaming around the club. They're tailing me and probably you. When I talk to Coco at the Yellow Dog, I can see he knows the logbook scandal from A to Z. Yeah, he does. Never meant anything because Fiore ran it all. No one was investigating nothing. If only Charlie DePiro hadn't developed dementia. Bruno moved over to Coco's desk and opened the drawer. He pulled out a silver-framed 8x10 photo of a dark-haired man dressed in a perfectly tailored navy suit and a younger Coco with no gray hair and slightly thinner. Coco wore a white tie and black shirt. Coco is Johnny Stefani's son and Charlie DePiro did work for Johnny 25 years ago. I doubt Johnny even knows Charlie's problem. If I were Coco, that's where I'd go, Vegas. Fiore won't mess with Johnny. Billy Bobcat is supposed to meet me in here shortly. He may have more information. That jerk. Bobcat was a regular in here before he left for Florida. Bruno pointed at Jones. Jonesy, you tell Bobcat Fiore isn't going to sit back and let him uncover the scam. I know that. Bernie Newman has been Coco's accountant for 15 years. Bernie's looking very carefully as to how the money was lost in the scam. Folding doors opened and the gray-haired Bernie Newman stuck his head inside. Bruno gave Bernie the high sign. Bernie looked at Jones. Jonesy, you take my advice. Go back to Hamilton and coach your team. The whole thing is becoming dangerous as hell. Where's Coco? I'll say no more. Hurry up, Bernie, said Bruno. Jonesy, go have yourself a drink. Billy gallivanted into the Club Max around 10.30. He wore a denim jacket and a rounded undershirt. Jones made his way forward his BB smiled from behind the bar. He immediately stepped up to the bar and ordered a Boston swasher from the blonde-haired BB. Hello, Jonesy, said BB, opening the tap. BB, he said, smiling. I hear you're engaged, she said, pulling back the tap. You heard correctly. Shame, she said as she smiled at Jones. Drop me a line if you get unengaged. You'll be the first to know. Her brown eyes beamed and she slid the mug to Billy. Jones turned to Billy, who had already begun to gulp the beer. Well, Mr. Billy, you've been busy. Mac says to say hello. Mac? No surprise, he's talking to me after we slaughtered St. Pat's. Twenty runs is a slaughter, <laughs> said Billy, looking around. Coco upgraded the club. It was a real kick being with him again. I hate to tell you, Billy, but Coco isn't exactly your friend. Billy shook his head and lit a cigarette. You split from Fenway with Coco. If you ask me, I think you and he are walking a fine line, Buster. Where is his Uncle Dulio? Get this straight, Billy. I'm not part of your story. Dulio was like a train playing for Notre Dame. He'd burst through the line and kick ass. You must have a way to call Coco. Coco's not stupid. He's not going to leave numbers. Look, Fiore is very uneasy about what Coco knows, said Jones. Billy lifted the mug while keeping the cigarette in his mouth. He knows how to clam up. Men like Fiore don't take chances, Billy. It always has to be in his favor. Like the logbook scandal? Billy snuffed out his cigarette in the empty glass mug. This is about the only place left in Prince William where you can have a smoke. You know, this is a good story. I may look into this. Back off, Billy. Not so fast, coach. Will your paper even let you investigate this? Billy's World of Sports. I'm on Channel 5 in Pembroke Springs for a nightly report. Oh, so you're a big deal. Billy had tiny gray teeth. Just doing my job. Let me run this by you. How can they be hiding the demented Charlie DePiro from Homeland Security and everyone else? Unless he's not demented, said Jones. Yeah, 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 that's what I thought, too. I made a few phone calls. One of them was to the Boston Self Rehab and Transition, BSRT. While I can't get the actual medical records, I got an official statement from an administrator calling long distance, a Dr. Spitzer. Charlie DePiro is suffering from advancing dementia and they ship him out somewhere? He was released to his son, Joey DePiro, in New Jersey. I talked to DePiro Jr. He said Charlie had been placed in a long-term facility, but he told me to mind my own business when I asked where. What would you expect him to say? It's none of your business. There are hundreds of facilities in a radius around New Jersey. Right. Then he tells me he wants to hide Charlie from Fiore, said Billy as he signaled Beanie for another drink. 
Billy lit a cigarette with a flared lighter and stared ahead and thought, Somebody sent Miller to you, because you'd run with it. You think it's linked to Charlie DePiro? asked Jones. That Jones is a big unknown. We can change the subject, said Jones. Okay, so I hear they're having a wild party for Larson at the Quonset Hut. Friday night. You hate Lark. All you can drink. Then he stared ahead. I do believe I'll be busy for that one, said Jones. Billy stroked his chin. This logbook thing is becoming very interesting. You don't have anything, Billy. You're a piece of work is what you are. Phoebe slid the beer to Billy. It's all up here, <laughs> said Billy, pointing to his head. Yeah, I hear the echoes, Billy. Billy kept the mug to his lips as he spoke and drank. You just don't want me to go after the leads. Sure, when they're valid, said Jones, looking at Billy's lips on the mug. You think you were married to that mug? Surely it's against the scam because it was too risky. How do you know that? asked Jones. He thought there were too many people involved, said Billy. Jones raised his index finger. That leaves it to chance that somebody rats out the scammers. You private investigator? No, my dad was an investigator and I've worked with the state police and FBI. Billy kept his lips to the mug. Fury was a lieutenant. He rose from heavy-handed collection jobs, an actual killing, according to my source. Then you've been making calls. What do you think I am, some kind of crackpot? Well, that's another story. Look, I know Fury personally through Coco. He calls me Matt instead of Matthias. I knew he was a tough customer, but killer? It's Coco's old man. It's Johnny Stefani, a Vegas fan. I know. Johnny was friends with Charlie. Johnny's a very big deal, said Billy, setting down the empty mug. Channel Z out of Las Vegas. Does Johnny have anything to do with Channel Z? Billy shook his head. Biff Johnson and Will and Wilk connected to people in St. Louis and indirectly to Fiori. I'm not sure how Johnson and Wilkie were connected to delay certain broadcasts, but that's not important. Coco was the messenger sent by Charlie to inform Fiori to shut down the local scamming via the bookies of information being delayed. Charlie flew to Vegas with Coco to inform Johnson and Wilkie to shut it down years ago. I'm not sure how Johnson and Wilkie were convinced to delay certain broadcasts. But that's not important. Coco was the messenger sent by Charlie to inform Fiori to shut down the local scamming via the bookies of all that information being delayed. But Johnny Stefani, you said he's powerful. They don't step on one another's territories unless... Unless what? Billy spoke through cigarette smoke. Unless somebody gets killed. Jones stroked his chin. Something's not right with this Charlie DePiro thing, the dementia. What do you call it, your, your side road theory? I'm going to talk to one of the chemistry professors at the college. I wonder if you can cause somebody to have dementia. Yeah, that's a stretch there, busting around. Is it? I'm just an old sports beat reporter dealing with wins and losses and stats and heroes. Same as the mob, Billy. The Life and Times of Charlie Diaper, Chapter 10, Fletcher Hill, Hamilton, New Hampshire, April 11th, 4.45 p.m. P.J. sat at Hamilton Fletcher's mahogany desk next to the atrium doors overlooking the grounds and the swimming pool area. A massive portrait of the late Hamilton Fletcher, his thin white mustache trimmed and his hair slightly longer, hung in a burnished alabaster frame above the fireplace. In the painting, Hamilton sat in one of the drawing room chairs. His dark suit and royal blue tie were bright, and his right arm rested on his left wrist. The energetic P.J. spun around in the chair and faced Ham in his open shirt and blazer. Even in these times of casual dress, P.J. Fletcher refused to yield and almost always wore a shirt and tie. The shirt was freshly pressed. P.J. tightened his tie. Are you working? asked P.J. as he sprang to his feet. Really, Ham, do you realize the problems this company has had since your father's death? Ham sipped his drink. 
Look, uh, PJ, the sales have been down, and we do have some outmoded equipment at the plant. Your father must be spinning in his grave. Things take time. Bank loans and adding a few salesmen. Well, that's just bullshit. PJ pointed at the computer screen. Gross profit margin down by 6%. How do you propose to secure loans when you can't back it up? Well, I'm not sure, said Ham nervously. Just let me handle it. I owe it to my uncle to point this out. PJ began to pace. You don't even have any damn new products. This is pathetic, Ham. It's my problem. No, if this company goes down, it affects my credibility and thus my holdings. And moreover, the Fletcher reputation. I'll keep you informed. The hell you will. I'll keep abreast of the shenanigans going on here in New Hampshire. Hollings appeared at the front door. Sir, Nigel Kent is very upset about an incident at the college baseball game today. Tell him we'll get, tell him I'll get back to him," said P.J. "Well, he was calling for Ham," said Hollings. "Well, you should have made that clear," Hollings snapped P.J. as he sat at the computer again. "Hello, Nigel," said Ham. "Ham, I need you to summon Bucky Driscoll to Fletcher Hill and officially reprimand him. He was taunting our pitcher when that pitcher was working on a no hitter." Ham pinched the bridge of his nose. "I'll take care of it, Nigel." Also investigating an incident concerning Driscoll at Fenway Park. I'll get him up here right away. Thank you and good afternoon. PJ looked over his shoulder. What did he want? A couple of incidents with our security man, Bucky Driscoll. Well, fire the bastard. Oh, that's a little harsh, PJ. How do you expect excellence if you're a mamby pamby? Asked PJ, picking up the phone. He punched in several numbers. Michelle, this is PJ. Get me Gary Pearson in IT. No, I'll wait. Hello, Bucky, said Ham. It's Ham Fletcher. What do you want, Mr. F? I'm busy. I have to scrape this tape off my cheek. PJ squinted and he stared at Ham on the cell phone. Well, I know you're busy, Bucky, but I need you up at Fletcher Hill. Oh, am I getting a raise? Be up here as soon as you can. I'll see if I can squeeze you in," <laughs> said Bucky, laughing as he hung up. PJ leaned back in the chair. "Gary, I want you to send a team up to my cousin's company in New Hampshire. I want the ability to monitor all aspects of the company from my phone and my iPad. No, no, I'm catching the red eye back to Chicago later after a meeting. I'll let them know over the plant," said Ham. "Yeah, yeah, you do that, Ham." Over the years, P.J. had learned of L.G. Bentley's reputation from Hamilton. Very rarely in his life did P.J. feel guilty about anything. But as he climbed the stairs to Bentley's office, he had an odd feeling about inheriting Fletcher trinkets or a scandalous piece of information to gain the advantage over someone after death. What grabbed P.J. was the fact that Hamilton Fletcher would not waste his time with trinkets or scandals. He opened the creaky door. The inside was painted with white trim and deep-colored walls. A voice called from the other room. I assume that's you, PJ. If it's not, I have a revolver in my desk drawer. PJ thought that was funny. I travel concealed, so let's shoot it out. The gray-haired Bentley wore a white shirt and a solid brown conservative tie. He had tight olive skin and dark eyes. He tucked a folder under his arm as he extended his other hand. L.G. Bentley. P.J. Fletcher, your reputation precedes you, sir. <laughs> you too. I guess Hamilton called him like he saw him, said Bentley as both men laughed. I have to tell you that I promised Hamilton five years ago that I would not open this codicil nor play back this video until you had access to it first. That is very unusual, said P.J. Well, Hamilton was a very unusual man. He asked me to insert the DVD in first and then leave the room, said Bentley as he flipped the light switch in the conference room. A flat screen hung from the front wall with a DVD player below. He handed P.J. the remote. <laughs> the drama, even in death, said P.J. If he were here, I'd tell him, Hamilton, I have to catch a plane out of Boston in four hours. Well, let's follow his edict and I'll get you out of here so you can get back home. 
Thank you, Bentley. I'll watch the lecture. Bentley closed the door. P.J. pulled out the large mahogany chair at the conference table. He leaned back. Then he pushed the play button on the remote. A crisp view of Fletcher Hill draped by orange and yellow foliage came into view. P.J. smiled, thinking those little touches which made Hamilton Fletcher as successful as he became in life. Hamilton did not look younger or old. It was just Hamilton. Well, hello, P.J. I see you've flown in from who knows where and are sitting in LG's conference room. The fact that I am dead is irrelevant. Hopefully Ham didn't dump money into my funeral. It wouldn't surprise me if Charles would reappear and put in a claim like he was at a horse race. And Anna, oh, Anna, she's crafty. And let's just say, let's just say the others. P.J. raised his brows and placed his elbows on the table. I've always admired you, P.J. Ever since you were a young child, you always could cut it, and you never let anyone take advantage of you. And I might add, you're the brightest of the bunch. Hamilton leaned toward the camera. He pointed his finger as he spoke. The thing about you, son, is you not only don't like to lose, you refuse to lose. And I know you care about the Fletcher heritage. So what does the old man have in mind? Hamilton stood and walked around his desk in his study. He placed his hand in his pocket. I never had to revisit my decision. You, Peter John Fletcher, as of the end of this film, are my sole heir. PJ's head snapped back to the video. What? That's right. I know you won't try and weasel out of it either, PJ. You get Fletcher Hill, the cars, the company, and all the ancillary companies. What about him? asked PJ. Ham will get over it, said Hamilton Fletcher on the screen as if he had anticipated the question. Ham has no stomach for business. I'm counting on you, son, to build the Fletcher Empire back to stratospheric heights. Oh my god. Make me proud, PJ. The screen faded and PJ shut off the monitor. For at least a minute, he stared out the window onto the dimly lit streets around Hamilton Common. When he stood, his mouth remained open. He slowly opened the door, and Bentley soon emerged from his back office. At first, Bentley smiled, but then he studied P.J.'s face. What's the matter, P.J.? P.J. gawked at him and spoke in a lower voice. Hamilton left everything to me. Jones sat with Franny in the back booth after everyone had cleared out of the Colonial House. Even Bucky Driscoll couldn't stop that no-hitter, Matthias, said Franny. Jones grinned. If only that duct tape could have been permanent. I have a DVD movie for us to watch. Oh, a chick flick. It isn't a chick flick. It's about this football coach who meets a local waitress. Jones smiled. Yeah, right. George Strickland, in jeans and a light Eisenhower jacket, stepped inside the Colonial House. Strickland spotted Jones and Franny and walked with his hands in his jacket pockets. His face had a solemnity that Jones knew very well. He focused his dark eyes on Jones. Bernie Newman was shot four times outside the Java Cafe last night. He's dead. And they emptied his briefcase because it was handcuffed to his wrist. And they may have even taken his cell phone. Now it gets more violent. There were witnesses inside. They saw two men in dark suits kill Bernie. Dom says they may have left fingerprints on the case. Now I know why Coco left town. George, do you know where they brought Charlie DePiro? I already talked to Dom. The only thing I have is an address of a Joseph DePiro, the son. He lives in New Jersey. You need to talk to him. Why? There's no connection with the bomb or Bernie Newman's death. Strickland put his hand on Jones's shoulder. And we have to let the Massachusetts DA handle the logbook thing. Secondly, federal agents need to put Coco in protective custody. Coco doesn't work with the feds. Jones's cell rang. Coach Jones, this is uh, PJ. I will not be returning to Chicago tonight. I wish to take you up on that dinner invitation at Nuncio's in Prince William. It's imperative that I speak with you tomorrow night. Well, my pleasure, PJ. Good. Tomorrow night at 8. Good night. And bring Franny with you. I, I will. Thank you. Good night, said Jones, looking up at Franny. PJ will not be returning to Chicago tonight. 
He wants to have Franny and me to dinner tomorrow night at Nuncio's. Well, good for you, said Strickland. Remember what I said about sticking your nose into this logbook thing. I will, George. Yeah, sure you will, said Strickland as he backtracked across the restaurant and out the front door. So where's Coco, Matthias? asked Franny. Unfortunately, Bernie Newman probably knew exactly where Coco went. No more. The Life and Times of Charlie Diaper Chapter 11 Nuncio's Restaurante, 919 West Crescent Street, Prince William, New Hampshire, April 11th, 8 p.m. Jones had arrived at Nuncio's with Franny around 7.30. They had drinks and then Franny was supposed to shop in some of the boutiques along Bouldry Street. Franny sipped her wine. Jones had water. If I drink all this, I'll be tipsy all the way down Bouldry Street. You're having water? Well, I want a clear mind when I talk to Mr. P.J. Fletcher. And George is supposed to fill me in with the results of Clayton's autopsy on Bernie Newman. Four shots is pretty definitive. <coughs> Never underestimate the unseen, said Jones. Who said that, your dad? You would have liked him, Franny. And he would have liked you. Actually, Aunt May said it. She was talking about one of her recipes. I met her briefly when she came back here. She spoke her mind, that's for sure. That's Aunt May. Dad relied on her advice. But back to Fiore and company. There's no doubt in my mind that Fiore ordered Bernie's death and stole the papers. Don't be surprised if Fiore has his guys watching us right now, said Franny as the pudgy Kip Bosco in his wrinkled maroon blazer stepped into Nuncio's. He mumbled something to Nuncio and then sashayed across the elegant dining room. Nuncio's is a little above your pay grade, Coachy. What brings you uh, to this soiree, Bosco? asked Jones. A trail of cigarette ashes trickled down his arm and stains blended into his tie's paisley fabric. Not as good as Hermes hot dogs on the docks, eh, Kip? said Franny. I don't know you, he said, pointing at Franny. And you won't. I could demand your ID, said Kip, rolling his tongue around his cheek. Okay, my name is Wendy Weeble, <laughs> said Franny, and Jones laughed. Law enforcement is no laughing matter, said Kip. Yeah, especially with you working vice, replied Jones. I want answers, Coachy. Go see a fortune teller, said Jones. Where's your buddy Coco? Kip removed a pack of Magic Nico cigarettes. After several attempts to activate his lighter, Kip lit the cigarette. Well? I have no idea. You're gonna have to come downtown for questioning, wise guy. Now move your ass out of that chair. Franny looked up as P.J. Fletcher, dressed in a press blue suit and yellow tie, stepped between Jones and Kip. He pulled a cigarette out of Kip's mouth and stuffed it in a water glass. No smoking at Nuncio's, fatso. You know who I am? No, I don't. Nor do I care to. Now get your oversized ego and pumpkin face out of here before I make a phone call to Mayor Picotta. Who the hell are you? Your worst enemy. Now go home and tell your mother she wants you. Why would my mother want me? Asked Kip. You're asking me? Now beat it. Kip removed a pair of handcuffs. Looks like I'll have to beat you up. Jones saw PJ smile for the first time. Kip dropped the handcuffs but lost his balance and fell backward. You must be Franny, said PJ, looking at Jones. Good choice, Matthias. Thank you. Jones raised his brows at Franny. Let's leave the blob on the floor. Nuncio's procured a private booth for us down back. Kip sat on the rug, and somehow it attached the cuffs to his wrist. PJ escorted Jones and Franny to a raised, semi-circular almond booth in the corner. Nuncio, up front, looked at Kip and softly clapped his hands to PJ. I think Kip will be occupied for a while, said Jones. Who is that doofus anyways? asked PJ as he motioned for Franny to sit down. Kip Bosco, PWPD. He likes to throw his weight around, said Jones. <laughs> no kidding, said PJ as he sat down across from them. I'm going to start right out with some extraordinary news. Jones wondered what Hamilton Fletcher had left PJ in his will. 
I met with Bentley yesterday, and I'll ask you two to sit on this information until the article appears in the Gazette, the Enterprise, Boston Globe, possibly the Tribune in Chicago. Yesterday evening, Hamilton Fletcher appeared on a custom DVD, recorded a few years back. Hamilton summarized my inheritance succinctly. He left everything to me. Jones opened his eyes wide, and Franny looked equally astonished. You're saying that Hamilton left his company in the mansion? Everything. PJ held up his index fingers to the approaching waiter. I will not be returning to Chicago immediately. What happens to Ham and his family? asked Franny. I offered Ham the same job he has now as national sales manager. He said he'd think about it. I spoke with Anna. <laughs> Your buddy, said Franny, elbowing Jones. She's trouble. I'm aware of that from way back. I cannot locate Charles Fletcher. Chuckles, said Jones. PJ smiled. I believe he tried to defraud Hamilton. Among others, said Jones, Hamilton was planning legal action, but Chuckles disappeared. I'll find the lowlife. When does all this take place? asked Franny. Technically, when the video ended, it legally reverted to me. I wasn't expecting the whole kit and caboodle. Matthias, I was briefed in a phone call by Hamilton himself on your record in Indiana, as well as your exemplary work here in New Hampshire on and off the playing field last year. We talked regularly on the phone. What are you saying, PJ? If I decide to come back here, I'll relocate my two boys and a daughter. My wife Joan has been after me for years to leave the Chicago area. She's from Maryland. We met at Princeton. Education provided by my cousin, Hamilton Fletcher. I want you as a coach, yes, and as an advisor, and I hope a friend. You've got that, PJ, but I feel bad about Ham. Ham will have to make his own decision. Now, I understand that this security officer, and I use the term loosely, Driscoll, was hollering from the stands at a young man pitching a no-hitter. I prefer that Bucky not go to any more of my games. He can't keep his mouth shut. Well, you won't have to worry about that anymore. Driscoll is gone. I fired him this afternoon. Whoa, said Jones, using one of Coco's expressions. You know, Matthias, I can't understand how this clown was hired as security at the college at all. He's a complete moron. Then again, Locke Larson was here for a hundred years. And now Locke Larson is getting married. Good luck to both of them. They'll need it. <laughs> said P.J., producing a quick staccato laugh. He signaled the waiter. Any recommendations, Matthias, for that security position? It would be greatly appreciated. What's your name? P.J. asked the waiter. I am Brad, sir. P.J. Fletcher, he said, shaking Brad's hand. Brad, would you be uh, so kind to bring us over a bottle of 2000 Chateau Trottenoy Pomerol? Yes, sir. Let me ask you about Coco Stefani. What about him? asked Jones. Yes, what about him? Hamilton years ago, early into the morning hours, told me about Ham's drug problem and how Coco got him back on track. Coco has a unique connection with the Fiore family who control New England. Hamilton used that connection very adeptly with Coco as the go-between. I can't seem to get Coco on his cell. I talked to a Bruno Navarro at Club Max. Sir, there's a massive scandal being investigated by the local district attorney as well as the DA in the Boston area. It's called the Logbook Scandal. Is Coco involved in this? asked PJ. No, definitely not. But he is aware of who did what. He's on the run for his life right now. There was a hit on his account this afternoon and papers stolen. One thing you should know about me, Matthias. I'm loyal and I admire loyalty. I intend if I stay here, to keep Coco in his liaison position and protect him if need be. Understood. Good. I'll make a decision on moving to Hamilton within a week. It'll be a change for my family and a change for Hamilton. Jones shifted the Jeep as he and Franny pulled away from Nuncio's. No shopping tonight, Franny, said Jones. How could I go? That man is incredible. A winner for sure, said Jones, turning onto a side street. I say he stays in Hamilton. I think he stays, said Jones as he drove down the street. The tall stone St. Bart's spire, illuminated by spotlights at night, was just ahead.
I haven't talked to Gallagher in St. Martin. Coco knows he can trust Gallagher if he has new information. Call him. Jones shook his head. If Jim needs to tell us something, he'll call. What about Bucky? Do you really think he's gone, Matthias? Jones downshifted at the cemetery corner at the shortcut to Route 32. Bucky's big mouth has always got him in trouble, and Hamilton got him out of it. Until he ran into P.J. Fletcher, said Franny. Jones turned on to Route 32. You know, Franny, I've never seen a more decisive man in my life. A man in charge. Franny fiddled with the radio and settled on some easy listening music. Chip off the old Hamilton. Exactly! Jones accelerated onto the highway up the hill to the notch toward Hamilton. Franny held his wrist. What I can't believe is how Hamilton just shoves aside his son and the will for PJ. Franny? Hamilton was all about the almighty buck. Jones adjusted the mirror. Someone was moving rapidly up the highway behind him. Oh, here we go, Franny. She turned. Where did this guy come from? Give me Coco's gun in the glove compartment. Franny opened the glove compartment and lifted out the gun. She checked the clip and then handed the gun to Jones. All set. Slip down, Franny. Franny slinked down on the seat. It's a dark-colored sedan. From behind, the sedan's horn began beeping. That's odd, said Jones, gripping the gun. As the sedan gained speed and paralleled Jones, Billy Bobcat waved him over. Oh, come on, it's Billy Bobcat. You gonna shoot him, coach? Gene Jones laughed. <laughs> I'd like to. Jones drove onto the sandy shoulder near the top of the notch. Billy pulled over ahead. Still gripping the gun, Jones opened the jeep door. I didn't have your cell, said Billy, holding a can of beer from the open window. He looked down at Jones's gun. Wow! Billy, Fury's people have been tailing me off and on since last week. Me too, Jones, he said, looking over at Franny. He waved. Hello, Francis. Franny reluctantly raised her hand back in the jeep. Billy, what's going on? I've got some additional information on that bombing. Maybe we should get off the notch and go back to Hamilton. I spoke with Adam Bisbee. Who's he? The police chief in Avondale, Connecticut. There's a gas station surveillance video showing Miller filling up. I have it on my computer. That tells us nothing because later a stick of dynamite was set off remotely. Huh? What? Who? What? Dynamite? How do you know that? Never mind. Come over to my house, Billy. The Colonial on the Common. You do know we're missing Lark's party. Who cares? Billy rolled his eyes. I'll follow you and then I'll party all night. You hate Lark, said Jones. I got plans for that party. Franny handed a plate with two turkey sandwiches to the ever-hungry Billy Bobcat at Jones's kitchen counter. Jones threw over a bag of spice-o potato chips from Delmonico's Market. Billy drank a tall glass of beer. Thank you, Franny, said Jones as he hugged her shoulder. So, Billy, I think we can agree that the Mustang was compromised in Avondale. He had to be coming to speak to Matthias, said Franny. Why me, asked Jones as Billy devoured the first sandwich. Billy slid his laptop across the counter and brought up the gas station video surveillance. In a few seconds, Jones and Franny leaned forward as the black and white overhead came on the screen. The white Mustang with wide stripes pulled up to the pumps. A young man in a lightweight jacket stepped onto the concrete. He shut the door and walked around the hood. Billy, this means nothing. I'm just a sports reporter. Yeah, Matthias is just a coach. Who made contact with Miller's girlfriend in Connecticut? Coco disappeared after the bomb blew up the Mustang. If he had information, he would have talked to me and not had to send people up here. If Coco were involved, said Billy. There had to be another car here in Hamilton, said Franny. Right. My side road theory says that maybe Coco didn't know Miller, but Miller drove several hundred miles to contact me, and when he got close, he was killed. was sent up from Connecticut clearly to talk to Jones. Jones is finding that something is wrong with Charlie DePiro having dementia. And then Bernie Newman, Coco's accountant, is shot dead. Coco disappears. 
DePiero Jr. placed Charlie in a long-term facility. Hmm, what's going on here? Miller, the driver of the Mustang, but the important part of this episode, and probably as the series changes, was Hamilton Fletcher leaving everything, Fletcher Hill, the money, the property, and all the companies to PJ. PJ later meets with Joan and Franny at Nuncio's. PJ is trying to decide whether he should relocate to Hamilton. The episode ends with a mysterious car beeping behind Franny and Jones on Route 32. Miller had a girlfriend in Connecticut. And why did he drive to New Hampshire to meet Jones? I'm Billy Bobcat. Stay tuned for this podcast and find out what the hell happened. Next week on Fitoon on the Air. Yeah. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com. And here's a real nifty factoid. You can listen to all my audiobooks without interruption on audible.com. Just type in Robert P. Fitton. Thank you and good night.